welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we'll be focusing on U.S. research, and we're going to start you off by checking in with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tips segment, author David Frixell will be back with us to narrow down the vast website field to the top 75 websites for state research, all from his new article called Heads of State from the December 2010 issue of the magazine. And in our 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we're going to visit one of those sites, the Washington State Digital Archives with state archivist Jerry Hanfield. Wait till you hear what they're up to. Then our own in-house preservationist Grace Dobush will bring us another installment of safekeeping. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, genealogist and author George Morgan will share some great research strategies for accessing and using U.S. vital records from his online course on the subject. And finally, we'll be checking in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who has some resources that every genealogist who's researching in the U.S. should have in their toolkit. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. start off this podcast episode with some news from the blogosphere, and we'll do that with the genealogy insider and managing editor, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. Well, Diane, I know that it's been a busy month because October was Family History Month, and uh, now the dust has settled. Tell us what you've been blogging about and what you've been learning about. Well, um, one opportunity I had last month was to participate in Family Search's Bloggers Day, which is the first time they've ever done anything like this. Um, they brought several bloggers to Salt Lake City to update us on the different projects that Family Search is doing, and they're changing so much about their websites and launching new projects that um, they just wanted to give everybody a general update on what's going on. It's hard for us to keep track, and I'm sure it's hard for listeners to keep track of everything as well, but they have some great tools that they're coming out with. You bet. Kind of give us an overview, because you're right, there there are a lot of different places now to go on the web to tap into what they have. Right, and the one that most people know is the classic family search site, which is where you can search the ancestor file and the International Genealogical Index and the Social Security Death Index and the Family History Library Catalog, and that's the FamilySearch.org that we're all pretty familiar with. But soon after that, um, well, when they started to um, digitize records and to index records, they launched the record search pilot site, which we were sending people to from the magazine for quite a while. And that was where people could search genealogy records and indexes that all the volunteers were working on. Um, but that site, it's still there, but they're not adding more records to it. Now they're adding records to the family search beta site. So mm-hmm. everything on the pilot site is now on the beta site, and the beta site is getting bigger with more genealogy records. Did they give some background on why the shift and and why not just stay with the pilot site or, or how that kind of comes to be? The, it had to do with the, the platform they were using and what they were able to do with it. The beta site has a more detailed search form, 
and um, the presentation of your search results is different. And then also on the beta site, they've incorporated a new version of the Family History Library catalog that you can search. And the beta site is where they're going to be um, putting all these different tools that they're coming up with. So in the future, when you go to FamilySearch.org, it will look like the beta site. Uh, so I imagine the pilot site gave them a place to put things while they were developing uh, the new Family Search beta site, and right. then everything kind of shifts over there. Okay, yeah. great. And yeah. then they have what community trees and forums. Uh huh. Um, the community trees has lineage linked um, genealogies from different time periods and places, and that's one that a lot of people don't know about. So um, we have the link on our blog post that people can um, go to, and that'll be in the show notes. And then forums was new to me, but that's a place where you can go and post genealogy questions, and they have Family Search um, Center consultants and Family History Library consultants will go on there and, and try to answer your questions for you. So that's a great way to tap into all that expertise. And so that would be separate then from the wiki, which is where I kind of think of going to look up a topic to learn more about how to research in a particular area or that type of thing. Right. And I do love the wiki. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a bunch of, um, of experts in genealogy. They just put everything they know there. So that's a great place to go when you're looking for how to do this or how to do that. And of course, uh, labs seems to be the, the new current buzzword. Everybody's got a lab, and mm -hmm. FamilySearch has one, too. Right, and that's where they start um, testing a new tool. So they have the FamilySearch family trees that a lot of people have heard of that started in FamilySearch labs. And that um, is currently open to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it's, they're still working on that. They're trying to come up with a way that they can reconcile differences in people's family trees. So that will probably not be part of um, Family Search when the new site launches. That'll still be limited to members of the church. But eventually it'll be available to all of us. Great. Wow, they've had so much going on. It seems like it's kind of all coming to the forefront now and and gelling together. And I think that your blog post um, is a wonderful recap of the whole thing. Um, Diane posted about this on October 21st. It's called Family Search Bloggers Day. And as she said, we'll have a link directly to that post in the show notes so that you can get up to speed on all those details. And Diane, we're so glad that uh, you're staying in touch with them and keeping us abreast of all the new changes. There's uh, lots to tap into. Thank you. You're researching your American ancestors, but with 50 states and countless websites for each, how in the world do you decide which are the best websites to focus on? Well, that's where David Frixell's article, Heads of State, comes in. David gives you the rundown on the 75 best state websites for climbing your family tree, and we've got him here on the podcast. Welcome back, David. Thanks for having me. Well, as you say in the beginning of your article, um, in genealogy, as in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. And you've put together a fantastic collection of location-based websites for us. What were you looking for when you were compiling this list? I think the number one thing is genealogists like to know about history and all the other related things. What we really want is data. You know, we want those family facts, the births and deaths and military records and all that sort of thing. So I really emphasized 
state-related sites that were packed with data. They might have some other stuff. There are sites like, oh, the Florida Memory Project that has, you know, old postcards and pictures and a lot of other cool things, but it only really makes it on there because it also has, you know, Confederate service cards and, you know, the really practical stuff so that you can actually find things out about your ancestors. So we look for, you know, vital records, um, military records, there's even uh, a site in uh, Nevada has its um, census records are online for free instead of having to sign up for you know a subscription website. So really, we're looking for the hardcore, the facts. Oh, that sounds fantastic. You know, when you look through the list, um, even though we all know that still just a fraction of the records that are out there are actually digitized online, you look at this list and you think, wow, we have really come a long way. Um, did you have some personal favorites, things that just went, you went, ah, this is fantastic? Well, there are a couple of ones that, uh, although though they're not new, we've had them on our 101 Death websites, for example, for a while. Uh, but there are a couple of states that just have done particularly outstanding things. I love Arizona, where you can go and get PDFs of their birth and death records. I just think that's, you know, I always use that as an example when I'm doing talks about online genealogy, because it just seems so incredible that you don't have to write away for anything. You don't have to just depend on an index. Here's the actual thing. You know, we can show it to you pretty much instantaneously. So that's very cool. Um, I think... uh, because I have ancestors in Illinois, a uh, favorite of mine has always been the Illinois State Archives. It's not a particularly slick site. You can sort of tell it comes from the government, but it has these fantastic rec- military records. It has statewide marriage index. It has uh, a statewide death index, and I've actually used it to find uh, my own ancestors. Plus, it's got this guide to regional archives that if the information isn't online, it will tell you where to right away and find it. So it makes it just so easy. It's like, here's all this stuff online, and if we don't got it, then this is where you go and get it. Oh, wonderful. Now, because obviously there's 50 states and you have 75 websites here, it sounds like some of these states have more than one kind of best website. In general, were you finding that the ones that really rose to the top were more government sites that are now putting on more of their own digitized records? Or were they leaning more towards, like, historical societies or, or some other type of group? I think archives tended to be the most common, uh, so they're stayed in, in that way. There are a couple of exceptions. The Wisconsin State Historical Society, for example, has a terrific uh, site where it's just packed with information. Um, and, again, if they don't have the information online, they will do the uh, research for you. Um, Oklahoma's was also the historical society, and there, and uh, Ohio uh, also got on there with this historical society. I think the most common was archives because they tend to have the information, you know, right there in their, uh, you know, in, under their roof, and so they're more and more digitizing it. Some states, uh, Washington State, for example, notably, is they're really going about digitizing almost everything, and so. You can envision a time when, if you wanted to do research in that state, you would really never have to, you know, get out of your PJs or uh, leave your computer screen. It's pretty amazing. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Now, so again, you know, as you're going through all of these sites, I'm, I'm imagining it must be very hard to have your job and, and not stop and want to dig into your own research as you're as you're finding these great sites. Were, were there any that kind of um, surprised you 
at the kinds of things that you could find? Well, you know, you expect birth and death records and marriage records, and there are a lot of those. They're great. And in, it's interesting how many military records you can find at state sites. That's a little surprising. You tend to think, oh, those are all going to be national. But, I, you know, in early days, a lot of those really were, you know, on the local level. One that really surprised me, and it's not technically a statewide site, but it really does have statewide information, is naturalization records. And, again, in my uh, dad's home state of Illinois, the Cook County Clerk of the Circuit Court has this site where they're digitizing naturalization records. They're about a quarter of a million and, and counting uh, from the early part of the 20th century. And, again, you forget that naturalization records, even though that sure seems like a national thing, most of those really were at that time in local courts. And, of course, if you came to Illinois, there are only so many places that would have the courts. So even though this is a Chicago area site, it's quite possible that people would get naturalized there and wind up living somewhere else, like in my family's hometown of Moline, Illinois. So the notion that you could go on and get naturalization records on one of these state sites was was pretty eye-popping. Oh, it's amazing. You know, and I think that's one of the things that's so great about what you do when you put these lists together um, at Family Tree Magazine is there's just too much to cover. And and I know that you devote so much time into combing through these, finding these eye poppers for us. And you've really put together a wonderful list. Even if we didn't look at any other website this year, we could spend the whole year just combing through these various state websites. And um, in this article, again, it's called Heads of State. And David also has on here some more database lists for you that you can comb through, some tips for using them, and the kinds of records that you're going to find, because as he says, it varies so much from state to state and website to website. David, thank you so much for once again putting together a wonderful comprehensive list so we know that when we spend that precious research time, we're really going to accomplish something. Thanks for joining us here on the show. Thanks for having me. In this episode's 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we're going to explore the Washington State Digital Archives at digitalarchives.wa.gov with the help of State Archivist Jerry Hanfield. Now, as State Archivist, Jerry is responsible for the maintenance and security of all public records and establishes safeguards against unauthorized removal or destruction. And as a member of the state and local records committee, Jerry approves and vetoes or modifies all the schedules for public records. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Great to be here. Well, thanks so much. You know, in looking at the website, I was surprised to learn that the Washington State Digital Archives really hasn't been around that long. I I know it looked like you guys had opened your doors around 2004, and yet it's a very robust site. Start us off by kind of giving us an overview of all the good things that we're going to find there at the uh, Washington State Digital Archives website. Well, the Digital Archives is the brainchild of uh, Secretary of State Sam Reed. Uh, When he was a county official, he found it difficult to have the state archives preserve electronic records. They said, we don't take electronic records. We only take paper and microfilm, which everybody's familiar with. So when he was elected Secretary of State, he immediately set out to establish, build, and establish a archives for electronic records. And 
What I tell people is that in 10 years or 20 years at the most, there will not be a digital archives. All archives will be digital. You won't have to use the term digital. It will just be the state archives. We don't say the microfilm state archives. We don't say the photograph state archives. So the the archives of the future will be electronic. And uh, Washington is a pioneer in that, and uh, it's due to the fact that we had a political person who realized the secretaries of state are responsible for keeping records, public records in a democracy, and people need to have access to their records. And uh, it, he's leading the pack, and, but we're also helping several other states uh, in this venture. You know, that's so well put that we don't call other types of archives by the media by which they save their, their information. And and my goodness, digital is, is certainly the wave of the future. And uh, And what I love about the website is how easy it is to access the information. I mean, it's one thing to have it stored somewhere, but what what you're really doing is making it so accessible. Tell us the kinds of records and collections that we might get access to there on the website. We designed our website so that it would be easily used and used often by anyone who has a computer to dial in and get access. No, we don't believe that it's necessary for someone to drive to their state capital to look at the public records of the state, or in our case, we have records of the counties and cities online. And what people are finding, we have records from cities, counties, state agencies. We have photographs, uh, governors, the courts, House of Representatives, uh, you name it. This is really, we just had a quotation from an attorney general's office user said, there's a gold mine of information, and information is gold. Information is vital, and it's important, and it's really important to a democracy. People, the citizens feel like they can't have access to their government. What they're doing, they distrust it, and it's expensive to store paper and make every person drive, park, and take the time to come in and register. So we are providing what I consider a basic element of democracy by making all of these records available uh, to people easily. And we don't copyright them if they want to download the photographs that we have from, we have millions of photographs. Uh, We have all kinds of uh, records from governors. We have uh, a pioneering, unusual, unique collection of hearings from the legislature from 1971 to the present and they were not intended to be broadcast they were just they had a microphone and people sat around the table and discussed laws uh, in the 70s and 80s and we have with a partnership with microsoft uh, we have made them available online and searchable you can put the word salmon or forest or road into the database of 40,000 cassette tapes, and it searches the all of the hearings for those words, transcribes the words, puts them on your screen, and you can click on salmon or forest or tree, and it starts playing the hearing from 1971. That's phenomenal. 
Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. You know, uh, oh, gosh, it's awful nice to have Microsoft in your backyard. And uh, I actually grew up there in Washington State. So um, it, I was having a lot of fun last night just searching around in the website and, and checking out and found some things on my own family. And I was really pleased to see that you do have a page there that's dedicated to genealogy. Now, you're a state archive, and obviously that goes well beyond genealogy. It goes into, like you say, more importantly, um, the political life of, of a state and the democracy and the government. What prompted you to go ahead and devote an area of the website to genealogy? We made a strategic decision in the uh, very beginning that how do you convince people that it's worth the money to preserve records. And we decided to take those records which are used the heaviest because when you have a lot of, when you have thousands of people using paper records, the paper soon disintegrates and falls apart. So it's a preservation. My job is to preserve records for centuries. So what we saw easily is if you make them available electronically, you can retire the paper into the dark and the cold and it'll last several hundred more years, and yet you make it available so people can dial in quickly and find the information about their family and marriage certificates. All these things fall apart when they're kept at home and in the attics and the basement. So we're preserving the cement that allows families uh, to stay together. And uh, I think it's the Facebook connection. You know, we're allowing people to connect to their families and have documentation and evidence of how they're connected to uh, various generations all over the United States and all over the world. We have 1,500 unique users every day, and that counts Sundays any day of the week, and they retrieve half a million records uh, every year uh, just pulling them up. And so if you imagine half a million people pulling up pieces of paper, you'd have little drops of paper all over the place <laughs> and soon you soon have a, a mess. Exactly. It's a preservation and we, we knew genealogists would appreciate it. In Indiana, when I was a state archivist there, we, we put indexes online in the late 90s and I was shocked at how many thousands of people used the indexes. So when I came here, I was recruited to come here to, to do the digital archives because of my belief that in a democracy, people must have access to their records, and genealogists are the best example of why le these legal and historical records have another life, why it's worth preserving them. Because a lot of people would say, once the legal purpose is over, throw them away. But they have a, a very important role to play in history and a very important role in integrating and cementing families and their connections for generations. Well, and I think it's an amazingly brilliant strategic move that you have made, therefore, the site very personal. You've made it personal to each citizen in the state and people who, of course, live across the country who have some kind of connection with Washington because uh, that keeps them very invested um, finally, I, I'm kind of interested. Now, you mentioned that you could do a search on the the recordings that you have, and it brings those up. Will we be most likely getting transcribed indexes when we get our results? Will we actually get um, oftentimes access to the original digital record? Um, or will we be getting more of like a library catalog description of what might be available? It sounds like it's it's a lot of stuff online. 
Yeah, we intend to put as much online as we possibly can. Uh, it's only limited by the amount of staff that we have because the cost in the technology and the indexing, the searchability, uh, the capability of search engines is just phenomenal. It keeps improving, and uh, so we can take less time. Can you imagine if we had to have 40,000 cassette tapes indexed by somebody individually listening to every word? Oh, yeah. That would take a century or two. Instead, we have this tremendous ability to search uh, audio, and that same search would apply to video, uh, and search the word, transcribe it, put it on your screen, and let you have access to the original. In other words, you're not relying on my spelling of Alhambra or some other word that's difficult to spell. Uh, you can just you can see it and listen to it and decide for yourself how the word is spelled. So yeah, I I think this is going to keep improving. This is a revolution in record keeping. It's a revolution in how we deal with records in a democracy. And uh, I think genealogists have been pioneers in convincing. Uh, people, legislators, and resource allocators that the money uh, spent in preserving uh, public records is an important part of democracy and it's something that we should be doing and we must be doing. And that's why I think genealogists are really the, the key to preserving a lot of our history and our legal records uh, because they realize first that there's a long-term benefit to a monetary benefit to uh, preserving these old, dusty records which just take up space and they're worthless and so on, which is what some budget people uh, (laughs) tend to think about records. Exactly. Well, if those of you listening would like to be part of the revolution and explore the collections of the Washington State Digital Archives, head on over to digitalarchives.wa.gov. And Jerry, thank you so, so much for joining me here on the podcast. Thank you very much, Lisa. You don't even have to, you, all you need to do is type in digital archives on any search engine and you'll come up with ours. Excellent. Oh, thanks so much. episode's Family Tree University Crash Course segment will continue exploring U.S. research with genealogist and author George G. Morgan, who's going to share some tips from his online course that's called U.S. Vital Records, Researching Births, Marriages, Deaths, and Divorces. Welcome back to the show, George. Thank you, Lisa. It's good to be here. Well, this course is pretty much a a must-do, I think, for every researcher because you cover those critical, vital records that we rely on so heavily. So I'd love it if you would give us a a quick overview of what you cover in your U.S. Vital Records course at Family University. Okay, Lisa. Well, the things that uh, I go into in this class are uh, birth records, marriage records, divorce records, um, stillbirth records and death records. And one of the things that I believe people make the mistake in with uh, working with these records is they think all of these records are correct. Ah, and they are not, are they? <laughs> you would think they would be. 
You would think, but uh, you, you'd be surprised. Uh, children's names are misspelled on uh, on birth uh, certificates. Uh, parents' names are misspelled. Ages of the parents are are incorrect. Um, there there are a lot of pieces of information that that uh, really aren't very uh, reliable. So you have to kind of pick it apart to understand uh, what's actually in these records. So in this class, you're not just covering the different collections, but you're really helping us to learn how to analyze the records that we're looking at, right? Well, that's right. Um, the the whole idea of primary versus secondary resources, have you gone into that in your discussions yet? No, actually, I don't think we've actually had anybody on specifically talking about it. Talk about that, because I think sometimes people do make the assumption when they're looking at battle records, they're all primary, so give us a, a, a definition of that. Well, one of the concepts that uh, you have to use when you're evaluating uh, any kind of record is whether it's a primary source of information or a secondary source. And the way you can distinguish between these is a primary source is a, a record that is created at or near the time of an event. And uh, as a result, it tends to be more reliable than something created later. Um, a secondary source is something that uh, is created after the fact, and it may suffer from someone's memory uh, being flawed, someone making mistakes, someone making assumptions. Um, and you're going to find that, that a number of records are, are going to be primary or secondary, or they may be a combination of the two. For instance, uh, a marriage record. A marriage record, for instance, is created at or near the time of, uh, of the event. And uh, you would think all the information would be correct, wouldn't you? Well, you'd hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we would hope so. But it's really dependent on how, for instance, how old is the bride? How old is the groom? And how can you verify that on a marriage record? The marriage record isn't primary evidence of the birth. It's secondary uh, because the birth occurred 15, 20, 30, 50, 70 years before. You never can tell. Another thing that you have to understand is, is it uh, an original resource or is it derived from something else? Now, when we say original, uh, let's, let's say, for instance, if it's a photocopy, or a digitized image or a photograph of uh, the the actual record itself, you can assume that is a positive copy of the original record. And you always want to look at original records to make sure that the information is correct, uh, that it has that been captured correctly, or that you can assess it and evaluate it. Now, something that is derived from something else, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one, for instance, would be a family history that maybe uh, Aunt Polly wrote back in the, in the 1950s. How do you know that what she, what she found and what she wrote is 100% correct? She may have gathered information from somewhere else. She may not have looked at original documents. She may have taken word of mouth and copied that down. So you're going to want to go back and do some research yourself. But uh, Polly may very well have 
been told something happened and uh, and it really didn't as she documented it. One of the tips that I give people who are working with marriage records, for instance, is when they go to the courthouse and they look at the marriage books and they see, oh, well, here's here's the marriage certificate. Here's the marriage license. Well, I'm sorry to differ with you, but that isn't the original. Uh, that's a transcription, something that a clerk copied from the original document into the marriage book. And so... You know and I know, Lisa, that it's easy when you're copying something to make errors. And if somebody has introduced uh, a, a flawed piece of information, even a spelling error or uh, transposing a date, it can it can blow a hole in your research. Well, you make a great point. It's almost like the old game of telephone. You have yeah. to almost be aware of at what point along the telephone line did this record occur. And that's a great tip is to really think it through and look carefully at them to understand at what point in the process that that record occurred. And, um, and I love your tip about looking at not just the document as a whole, whether it's primary or secondary, but to really look at each piece of information coming off the document and that some of those can be primary and some of that, like somebody's birth date, very much so could be secondary. George, there's, there's so much to cover when it comes to vital records. Give us a quick overview. If somebody signs up for your class, what's the experience? How long does it go and, and what will they expect when they sign on? Well, what I have is a series of five lessons and uh, these written le- lessons give you an introduction to a particular record type. I have images embedded that show uh, samples of the documents themselves, so you know what they look like. And then a description of really what it is, how accurate is it, and how you would separate the primary from secondary information or the original from derivative information. Um, so the idea is to give you give you examples of of places to find information. For instance, if you're looking for marriage uh, related records, Lisa, don't rely a hundred percent on the marriage document that you find in the courthouse. I mean, there are other places to gather information. Uh, you can go to the church, look for marriage bans, or look for a a marriage ledger. You could look for engagement announcements and marriage announcements in the newspaper. Uh, you, you can rely also on maybe letters that someone wrote about, uh, about having witnessed the wedding. Now, are all of those going to be accurate? Maybe not or probably not, but they certainly give you something as a clue to lead you elsewhere. But the whole idea is to is to take you through the process of this, um, uh, of each one of these documents. And then uh, we conclude with some keys for success. These are uh, some tips for successful work with a different type of resource. And, uh, and then uh, you can submit an exercise, an optional exercise, and I'll review it, make comments on it. And uh, we can interact by email or on a message board. 
fantastic. You know, there's there's so much to learn. And as you can tell, George is an expert when it comes to vital records. Um, getting in, in touch with him, that, that's the wonderful thing about these classes, is that when you sign up for a class, you know, with George or any of our instructors, you really are having an opportunity to have them take a look at the work that you're doing and give you that really necessary feedback so that you can really collaborate together and get a really good solid hold on the information that you're learning. It's fun stuff. The class is called the U.S. Vital Records course at Family Tree University at FamilyTreeUniversity.com. And George, thank you so much for not only joining us here on the show, but already giving us some wonderful tips to get us started. Thanks, Lisa. This is fun. everybody. This is Grace, the preservation expert here at Family Tree Magazine. Last month I gave you some tips on downsizing your collection of heirlooms, and I hope they helped you declutter your home. Once you've determined what you do want to keep, how the heck do you keep it organized? I'll tell you how in this edition of Safekeeping. Keeping track of your family's heirlooms is a tedious job, but somebody's got to do it. The most important thing is to take a census of your keepsakes. You can download a form from the podcast show notes page, print it out, and go from room to room in your house making note of anything that's a hand-me-down. As you're going through all your heirlooms, make note of anything that looks to be in bad shape. You might want to reconsider how you're storing the piece or hire a professional conservator to help. When you've completed your census, go back and write down everything you know about each heirloom. We've got a form you can download for that, too. Make sure to note what it is, how it looks, where it came from, when it was made, who owned it, who made it, and how you came to own it. If you don't know everything, that's okay. You can ask relatives about items you're unsure of later. If you're feeling really ambitious, take a digital photo of each of the heirlooms to store with its description. Keep all your heirloom information in a binder or type it up on your computer and make backup copies just in case. This could mean making photocopies of everything and giving it to your cousin who's also keeping some heirlooms. Or it could be as simple as emailing yourself the Word file. That way you'll still have a copy saved even if your computer crashes. You can learn more about writing the histories of your heirlooms in the upcoming January 2011 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Until next time, stay safe. Well, in this episode, we've covered a lot of great resources for U.S. research. And now we are going to check in at the editor's desk because Allison Stacy has several more terrific resources to kind of send us off with. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Well, Allison, you know, our theme for today's episode has been U.S. research. Um, and I know that you as editor are involved in several different projects across Family Tree Magazine. What kinds of resources do you have that we can tap into to take this even further? We've got a lot, and a few specifically come to mind. I think one of the most popular series that we ever did in the magazine was our state research guides, where in each issue we would cover a couple of states and really kind of give an overview of how to do the research and then lots of um, websites and archive addresses and that kind of thing um, to help people take the next steps. And so those are all compiled on a CD called State Research Guides, appropriately. And um, that's just a great resource for putting all of that information in one place. And so, you know, a lot of 
folks have ancestors who migrated through different states and need multiple states information so you can get it all in one place with that and one of the great things about that CD is that you can you know print out just the pieces that you need when you need it and then all of those websites that are mentioned are all linked directly to the web so that you can just click to the resources that you want to investigate. Oh, I find I keep going back to it because it, it's interesting as we, like you say, we continue down the road of our research and you find yourself moving into a state that you haven't spent time in before doing research. And that means a whole new set of where are the records, where are the archives, what are the websites, and the fact that you can click straight through to get there fast. Um, that is a pretty slick component of that compilation CD. Absolutely. And sort of along the same veins, we recently introduced a series of webinars focused on different states and doing genealogy there. So for example, um, a couple months ago, we did Pennsylvania genealogy with Jim Beidler, who is a resident of Pennsylvania and um, also teaches some of our Family Tree University courses. And it was really great overview of doing research in the state, some of the history, and, and, and a little more in-depth on some of those things than we can really get in a four-page magazine article. So, you know, it was an hour long, and it was a really good discussion. And we're currently working on putting together a similar webinar for Georgia, and in December, we'll have one on New York. So um, folks looking at those states should definitely check out the webinars. Yeah, the Pennsylvania one was fantastic. I mean, Having Jim Beidler, he's like this expert in Pennsylvania research. He writes a newspaper column. I know he writes for the magazine. And having him there, not only um, really personally talking to us, but then we could ask questions back and forth. Boy, that was fantastic. Definitely a good use of an hour of time. And I'm hoping we're going to look forward to more states coming down the pike. I know I've got a couple on my list I'd love to see a webinar on. Yes, in fact, um, you know, we do plan to do a whole series, as I mentioned. Um, but if there are certain states that listeners are interested in seeing us do a webinar about, please let us know. Um, send us an email or post it on our Facebook page, you know, however is convenient for you to communicate. Please let us know because we kind of are operating by popular demand. Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, put in your request and chances are it may get uh, picked up here pretty quickly. And you got to talk to us about the Family Tree Sourcebook, because to me, that's kind of like the go-to manual. If I don't have anything else, I've got that, and that really helps us move our way through U.S. research. Sure. Um, as compared to the state research guides, which really keep things at a state level, the Family Tree Sourcebook is a handbook that's broken down by state, but it really gets into the granular details of every county, which counties are so important to our genealogy research. That's information that's so vital. So for any given state, you can go into the source book and you can look up whatever your ancestor's county was, where to find different kinds of records. So where are the birth records and when did they start? Who has the court records and when did those start? you know, all the way down the line for every county in the United States. So it's a super, super important um, reference manual that I really think every genealogist should have on their bookshelf. Absolutely. You know, I think it's pretty exciting how you've kind of transitioned from the paper magazine to really meeting genealogists where they are, you know, whether it's um, looking it up on a disc or it's listening to it on the show here on the podcast or watching it in a webinar, you know, we all learn so many different ways. Um, it's wonderful that you kind of meet us in those places where we can best learn. Well, that's really our goal, because 
a magazine really can only go so far, although, you know, it, it certainly is one of our favorite things to do still. Um, you know, we really feel like we're more about a community of researchers and trying to provide information in whatever way that that community of researchers needs. Well, terrific. Well, tell us, how do we get a hold of things like signing up for the webinar or picking up the source book or the research guides CD? Well, you'll find it all at shopfamilytree.com, which is our online store. And there's actually a whole category devoted to U.S. research on there. So in addition to the resources that I mentioned, there's lots of great products from other companies, too, um, that you may find useful for your genealogy. Oh, great. So we can look by category and we can register webinars right there on Shop Family Tree? That's right. Oh, terrific. Oh, Allison, wonderful. Well, this has been a fun episode um, digging into U.S. research, and you've given us a whole lot more terrific tools to stick in our tool belt. Thanks so much. We will talk to you next month. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for this November 2010 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Next, go to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode. They're going to include all the information and website links for everything that we covered on today's episode, including links to Shop Family Tree, where you can pick up those great research resources that Allison told us about. Then head on over to the Washington State Digital Archives at digitalarchives.wa.gov to see what a truly innovative approach they are taking, to see the truly innovative approach that they're taking to state record preservation and distribution. And finally, head on over to FamilyTreeUniversity.com where you can browse the upcoming courses, including George Morgan's terrific U.S. Vital Records course. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, please do email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I do hope that you'll visit me at my website at genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. And both of those shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>